Casting through Ancient Greece as an Amazon Associate member. As an Amazon Associate, I earn from qualifying purchases. What this has allowed me to do is recommend books to you guys that are relevant to the episodes I am presenting. The books I'll be recommending I have read myself and made use of during writing the series. If you are interested in purchasing what I have recommended using the link of the book on the episodes page of my website, will help support the series with providing me a small commission. For this episode, I'm going to recommend Sicily, a short history from the ancient Greeks to Casanostra by John Julius Norwich. I found this to be a good light introduction to the history of Sicily. It deals with the early history and the Greek colonisation in the opening couple of chapters. Though I found the rest of Sicily's history to be fascinating also. It was a great book to set the scene of the island in my head. If you head to the episode page for episode 38, The Greek Periphery, Sicily, on the Casting Through Ancient Greece website, you can find the link for John Norwich's Sicily. Additionally, if you would like to become a member of Audible, the largest collection of audiobooks on the internet, you can click the Audible banner on the Casting Through Ancient Greece website to gain a 30-day trial membership, where you'll also find a number of the books I'll be recommending. The first island we shall speak about will be Sicily, since it is both the richest of the islands and holds first place in respect of the great age of myths related concerning it. Diodorus of Sicily Hello, I'm Mark Selleck and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 38, The Greek Periphery, Sicily. We recently left the narrative of the series at the end of the Greek and Persian Wars. We then looked a little bit closer at the man who had been our main contemporary source on the period, Herodotus. I feel we have covered both areas with a good amount of detail, and hope that the journey so far has been an entertaining one to follow along with. At this point, I want to now cast our way back a little bit to look at the wider Greek world, where we'll focus on a few areas in more detail. The Greek world can be complicated to follow along with in a linear fashion, due to it not being consigned to one geographical area. A great wealth of our knowledge does focus on the central Greek world, that is told from a point of view, with Athens and Sparta at the centre. This has come about through good reasons though, as they were the most powerful and influential Greek city-states involved in the great events of the classical age. Though, we are now going to shift our focus to the periphery of the Greek world. Not all of it, but to a few regions that will come to take on more importance as the narrative of the central Greek world continues. We will look back into the earliest known history of these regions and bring them up to the point where we left the central Greek world. We will look at them in their own right, in how they would develop over the ages and what was taking place within them. We will also see how they would interact with central Greece as their interests and circumstances would see them become part of the Greek world. I have drawn out a rough outline of the areas I'd like to cover in the survey of the Greek periphery over the next few episodes. I want to begin in the west, in what the Romans would later call Magna Graecia or Greater Greece, encompassing many Greek city-states that would dot southern Italy, with a greater focus on the island of Sicily, where we will also look at the peoples that would develop in the Levant, but who would come to have much interactions in the Greek world, the Phoenicians. They would become intertwined in the trading activities and colonies of the Greeks, with the developments of their own networks and colonies. We will then head north of central Greece, looking at the lands that seem to host a great number of different tribes loosely connected but often warring against one another. These would be the lands of Macedonia and Thrace, with a connection to the other Greeks from previous Indo-European migrations that had filtered down through these lands. 
Macedon in its later times would come to control the Greek world and spread it further than before, thanks to Alexander the Great and his campaign east. We will then end with a region that is featured in our story so far, this being Ionia, along the Anatolian coast. Though we will have a greater focus on their development through colonisation from the Greek lands, their history in their own context, and a focus on one of the most important cities, Miletus. With this survey of the periphery done, we'll then be in a good position to pick back up the narrative where we left the Greeks having defeated the Persian invasions. This opening a new era in Greek history where decisions and events would see the Greek world advance towards a disastrous war within itself. But let's now begin our look at the wider Greek world with our look west at Sicily. Sicily and southern Italy would become ingrained into the Greek world as the Greeks were emerging out of the Dark Ages and into the Archaic Age. With the increases in population on the mainland, and many cities' inability to provide for such growth, a popular solution was to send out expeditions to establish new colonies in other lands. Sicily and other areas around would be one of the earliest places to see these colonies develop, and over the next couple of centuries it would also see one of the highest concentrations of Greek colonies. Many of the mother cities in Greece would be able to draw ties to the colonies dotted throughout. It was also clear that trade had been taking place even earlier during the Mycenaean times, with much Mycenaean pottery found in Bronze Age settlements on the island. These connections stretching back to a time of bronze and heroes would also see Sicily enter into a deep remembered past recounted through Greek mythology. It was here that one version of the story of how the seasons came about would develop. It would be told that it was in Sicily that Persephone, goddess of spring and nature, would be abducted by Hades and then taken to the underworld. Her mother Demeter, goddess of the harvest and agriculture, would search for her daughter everywhere, and in her search, the earth would be neglected with its crops failing to grow. Once learning of her fate and the cries from the hungry people on the earth, Zeus would be convinced to intervene, forcing his brother Hades to return Persephone. Before returning her, Hades would trick her into eating a number of pomegranate seeds, a condition of her release had been that she did not taste the food of the underworld. The amount of seeds she ate would see her having to return to the underworld for a period of time, the winter months. In the Odyssey, Odysseus' encounter with Polyphemus, the Cyclops, took place on Sicily, where he would use trickery to escape. Polyphemus would hurl three great boulders at the fleeing Odysseus and his men, which now lay off the east coast of Sicily, known as the rocks or islands of the Cyclops. It could even be argued that Polyphemus, the Cyclops, a giant one-eyed monster, and son of Poseidon the Earthshaker, was looking back to a connection with the natural world, Polyphemus being Mount Etna, the volcano on the island. The connection with Sicily and Odysseus would continue with his close shave with the sea monster Charbus and Scylla as his ship sailed past through the Straits of Messina, the narrow stretch of water separating Sicily from southern Italy. Here we can see some deep-rooted connections to the island of Sicily and the Greeks with the intertwined with many aspects of their traditional tales of the long-remembered past. Now let's move on to looking at the physical island of Sicily and the early signs of human habitation. I think we might begin with what the Greek historian Polybius writes in his histories in the 2nd century BC of the island in his time. Sicily, then, lies towards southern Italy very much in the same relative position as the Peloponnese does to the rest of Greece. The only difference is that one is an island, the other a peninsula, and consequently in the former case, there is no communication except by sea. In the latter, there is a land communication also. 
The shape of Sicily is a triangle, of which the several angles are represented by promontories. That to the south, jutting out into the Sicilian Sea, is called Pactrianus. That which looks to the north forms the western extremity of the Straits of Messini, and is about twelve stades from Italy. Its name is Pilorus, while the third projects into the direction of Libya itself, and conveniently situated opposite the promontories which cover Carthage at a distance of about a thousand stades. It looks somewhat south due west, dividing Libya from the Sardinian Sea, and is called Lilibaeum. Further to what Polybius writes, Sicily is the largest island in the Mediterranean, with much of its interior dominated by hilly terrain. From here, a number of rivers begin, and most flow out into the sea to the southern coastline. At the north of the island, the mountain ranges are an extension of the Apennines, throughout the Italian peninsula. The island of Sicily's most notable landmark is the active volcano Mount Etna, on the eastern coast at over 3,300 metres in height. Surrounding the island are a number of other much smaller islands, with a number also exhibiting volcanic activity. Being in the Mediterranean, the climate experienced on the island is very similar to that of Greece, with mild wet winters and hot dry summers. So with the physical world of Sicily looked at, let's now turn to the human world of the island and where humans seem to enter the picture. As with the early habitation of any land, the details are extremely murky and only based off of very limited archaeological evidence. Though with that said, it seems the very first signs of human habitation seem to date back to over 500,000 years ago on the island. But these humans were not Homo sapiens, our closest relative. This period in Sicily's past has much debate around what was happening and when things were happening. But for now, it appears some human species had existed deep into its past before the emergence of Homo sapiens. Fast forward a few hundred thousand years, and we are faced with a theory that explains the habitation of the island by modern human beings. But this is also hotly debated. This revolves around what is known as the Aurignacian period, explaining the dispersal of Homo sapiens throughout Europe. This is supposed to have taken place between around 40,000 BC to 20,000 BC, and connects to the out-of-Africa theory that saw Homo sapiens emerge onto the world stage. This period would also see these populations come into contact with another of our distant relatives, the Neanderthals. The Neanderthals were the dominant human species throughout Europe and the Near East before Homo sapiens arrived. This 20,000-year period is then sought to explain the disappearance of the Neanderthals and replacement by Homo sapiens. The general theory here being that Homo sapiens had the greater ability to organise in larger social groups, which eventually overwhelmed the smaller groups of Neanderthals. Though, it appears, this was done through a mixture of violent and peaceful means, like with later movements of people throughout history. To this day, we have evidence of interbreeding between the two groups, as a majority of people with a European or Near Eastern origin retain somewhere around 3% Neanderthal DNA. Anyway, this migration of modern humans through Europe is then thought to have spread from mainland Europe and then to the islands of the Mediterranean, with Sicily perhaps being one of the first. Some cave art found at the Adura Caves at the north of the island, just outside modern-day Palamo, seem to connect to this migration period. This art has been connected to the same culture that did the famous rock art at the caves at La Soa in France. There are many examples of this culture throughout Europe, with it being collectively known as Magdalenian. The example of Sicily is thought to date right at the end of this period, somewhere around 11,000 BC. The art depicts various different animals, as well as a scene 
of over a dozen people appearing to be part of some sort of ritual sacrifice. The majority of people are in dance-like poses, while two are bound and appear to be overseen by shamans. Though it's not until later that we start to get names of different cultural groups in the literary tradition that are thought to have inhabited Sicily, with much of this coming from the ancient writers Thucydides, Strabo, and Diodorus, to name but a few. The earliest of these peoples that can be pointed to are thought to be the Sicani. Thucydides talks of them being the earliest known race to inhabit the island, but he also talks of an earlier people originally occupying Sicily, but he can't point to who they actually were. He says, It was originally as follows, and the peoples that occupied it are these. The earliest inhabitants spoken of in any part of the country are the Cyclopses and the Lestrigons, but I cannot tell of what race they were, or from where they came, or to where they went, and must leave my readers to what the poets have said of them, and to what may be generally known concerning them. He then continues with how the Sicane, or Sicanians, came to occupy Sicily. The Sicanians appear to have been the next settlers, although they pretend to be the first of all Aborigines, but the fact shows that they were Iberians. It's also worthwhile to note, although Thucydides has them originating in Iberia, it has often been proposed in modern times that the Sicane may well have been an Illyrian tribe, originally from the Balkan area north of Greek lands. This also fits in with the migrations of Indo-Europeans that were taking place all through these different regions. It can't be shown that the Sicane were of Indo-European origin, since their language has yet to be classified, but they well could have been displaced by Indo-European migrations into their original homelands. We must also point out that even in ancient times, historians were not in agreement on the origins of the Sicane, as we can see from what Diodorus writes. We must now write briefly about the Sicane, who were the first inhabitants of Sicily. In view of the fact that certain historians are not in agreement about these people, Philistus, for instance, says that they removed from Iberia and settled the island, having got the name they bore from a certain river in Iberia named Sicanus. But Timaeus adduces proof of the ignorance of this historian and correctly declares that they were indigenous, and inasmuch as the evidence he offers of the antiquity of these people are many, we think that there is no need for us to recount them. So at the present time, it appears the Sicane are the first defining group of peoples we can point to on the earliest habitation of a culture in Sicily. But they would not be the only people to occupy the island, more would follow. Another people that we hear about are known as the Ilamai. Now if you're trying to wrap your head around the time frame here, things are very murky. Although it appears that the Sicane were the original culture to develop on Sicily and had come to the island perhaps as far back as 11,000 BC, it isn't sure when the Ilamai arrived. The archaeological record can't even distinguish between the two people, with them appearing to be culturally the same. What does distinguish them, though, is what appears in the literary tradition, and this appears to be around the end of the Bronze Age, perhaps the 12th century BC. We find Thucydides saying, On the fall of Ilium, some of the Trojans escaped the Achaeans, came in ships to Sicily and settled next to the Sicanians, under the general name of Ilamai. With them settled some of the Phacaeans, carried on their way from Troy by a storm, first to Libya and afterwards from there to Sicily. This fits in with the common theme in epic poetry of the Aeneas and the surviving Trojans of having sailed from Troy and settling in Italy. 
We find Virgil in the opening of the Aeneid, having Aeneas and his men beginning on Sicily after their escape from Troy. Though, interestingly, they would leave, be blown by a storm, to Libya, before eventually arriving in Italy. The Aeneid also features a number of creatures associated with Sicily, such as the Cyclops, Charbatus, and Scylla, that are found in Homer's tale, The Odyssey. But it must be noted, Virgil was writing some 700 to 800 years after Homer, and nearly 400 years after Thucydides. It has often been pointed out that the Aeneid was Rome's attempt to show they had a history stretching as far back as the Greeks' origins. It does seem a firm tradition of the origins of the various Sicilian tribes existed in a literary sense before the emergence of the later Roman poetry, although it isn't known for certain where Thucydides got his information on the different peoples. It has been assumed to be from the historian Antiochus of Syracuse, who wrote History of Sicily, as this has been his source on other matters regarding Sicily. Very little is known about Antiochus, and only fragments of his works remain. Though he had a reputation of producing accurate histories and was thought to be writing around 420 BC, the Elamai would end up settling the northwest of Sicily, establishing two main cities called Arexi and Agesta. We don't hear of any wars between them and the Sicane, but again, the archaeological record is unable to separate them from the Sicane in the Late Bronze Age. Though, with the development of the Iron Age, a noticeable shift towards Greek culture would develop here on the northwest though there would be a third major group of peoples that would end up settling Sicily right at the end of the Bronze Age in the Aegean. This group was known as the Sicils, and let's see what Thucydides says of them. The Sicils crossed over to Sicily from their first home, Italy, fleeing from the Opicians, as tradition says, and as seems not unlikely, upon rafts, having watched till the wind steadied down the strait to make a passage, although perhaps they may have sailed over in some other way. It is hard to pinpoint when the Sicils first arrived on the island of Sicily, with some evidence suggesting it being at the start of the Iron Age, around the 11th to 10th century BC. Suggestions also have the Sicils introducing iron to Sicily and therefore bringing it into the Iron Age, though there is also a theory that the Sicils were part of a group known as the Sea Peoples, that Egypt talks of invading their lands at the end of the Bronze Age. The name the Egyptians use is Shekelesh which has been connected to the Sicils of Sicily. If this is the case, then it could show that the Sicils had been established on Sicily before around 1200 BC, though obviously a great many still remained on the island, since they would become the dominant group to inhabit Sicily into the Iron Age. What has also been suggested is that the Sicils were of Indo-European origins, which would have most likely seen their linguistic origins at least stretching as far back to the Danube Valley or Carpathian Basin. These areas had been the result of earlier migrations from the east, with these areas moving forward in time being seen to give rise to a number of languages that would develop throughout Europe. Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Do you feel like you're stuck in a dinner rut? With HelloFresh, you get fresh pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip all those trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less. With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Myself, as a father of three, I am really liking the look of the many options under the family-friendly category. Go to the link in the show notes to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh. 
the number one meal kit. Have you been enjoying the series and want to show your support in some way? You can visit www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button. Here you will find many ways you can help the series grow, from subscribing, getting involved in social media, and leaving reviews where you listen to your podcasts. Other options also include assisting with my Amazon wishlist for resources and supporting the series on Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee. The support I have been receiving so far has been fantastic. So a big thank you to everyone who has been helping me grow the series. With the arrival of the Sickles, we hear through Thucydides and Diodorus that wars had erupted between them and the Sicanians. These wars would end up resulting in the borders that the Greeks were aware of once they arrived on Sicily, with their colonies later. Thucydides says of the Sicels, These went with a great host to Sicily, defeated the Sicanians in battle, and forced them to withdraw to the south and west of the island, which thus came to be called Sicily instead of Sicania. Diodorus is then pretty much in agreement on this point when he says, And since the Sicali steadily grew more voracious, and kept ravaging the land which bordered on theirs, frequent wars arose between them and the Sicane, until at last they struck covenants and set up boundaries upon which they agreed for the territory. Though having gone through what we have said in regards to the three separate groups, there is another thought that has developed and become popular in more recent times. This basically looks at all three of these groups essentially being the same people arriving around the same time that the Sicane arrived with a date of 1600 BC proposed. This would have seen an indigenous culture present on the island before their arrival, as Thucydides suggests. It is then thought that rather than separate migrations resulting in different cultures, it was outside influences that saw different cultures develop. The original Sakane culture being emerged with outside contacts, which would see a new recognisable culture develop. These outside influences may have only had a connection to one part of the island, which is why three distinct cultures would emerge. The limited amount of DNA evidence that has come about from the different areas of the island has probably helped give rise to this theory, as there doesn't appear to be any differences between the groups from a DNA perspective. Having said this, it doesn't completely replace what the ancient writers have said about the various Sicilian groups. It just questions the origins of each group. Rather than arriving separately from different regions, the cultures developed internally within the original Sicane culture. One could still even argue that the cultures had arrived from different lands at different times, but the people that would become tied to them had always inhabited the island. But again, with much of the early history of Sicily, the details are very hazy and much debate still takes place around these matters. Our earliest knowledge about the people's origins come from Greek writers who were writing about Sicily well after the establishment of them. Eventually, the Greeks themselves would come to Sicily and would establish their own colonies. As things stood just before the Greeks' arrival, the Sicils occupied the most prosperous eastern parts of Sicily, the Sicane, the central parts, while the Elamai had their cities in the northwest. So far, much of the early history before the Greeks arrived on Sicily is still surrounded in some mystery and debated to this day. The scripts that the early cultures of Sicily used have yet to be deciphered in any meaningful way. Though, even what has been recorded is not guaranteed to give us the information we are looking for. Even when looking at the Mycenaeans on Greece, we are only left with administrative documents such as inventories. With the arrival of Greek colonists to the island, things would change. The Greeks had begun using their newly created script to record much more than lists of inventories. 
Homer is thought to have had his epic poems recorded around the 8th century BC. The Greeks would record their exploits and what they encountered as they went west. This would then be transmitted over time and space in a language that most Greeks could understand. We then find much of this information being reproduced by later geographers and historians, of whom some of their works still survive to this day. Now, when we talk of Greek colonies heading out to settle Sicily, it wasn't like they were arriving for the first time. Trade, and even perhaps populations from Mycenaean Greek lands, have had a connection to the island previously. The archaeological record has shown that Mycenaean culture had some influence within the indigenous populations during the Bronze Age. Also, for the Greeks, a few hundred years later, to send out colonists, they would have most likely been aware of Sicily and its lands to have even considered to engage in such an undertaking. It is also likely, with the re-emergence out of the Dark Ages, trade would have been taking place between the two regions before these colonies arrived. So why were the Greeks, beginning the 8th century, looking to establish colonies on Sicily? We briefly looked at this question way back towards the start of the series when doing our episode on the Archaic period. But it won't hurt to refresh ourselves on these motivations for cities in Greek lands to send out these colonies. After the collapse of Mycenaean Greece, which was part of the wider Bronze Age collapse, the once prosperous kingdoms had gone into decline, most being abandoned and vanishing from the historical record. Culturally, Greek lands seem to have gone into a regression, which has in some part seen this period as a dark age. Though as the generations passed, the dispersed settlements and populations of the dark age period began to go through a recovery. The number of settlements began to increase, and of more importance to our question, these settlements were now rapidly increasing in population. We have spoken previously on how the Greek lands were not the most suited to large agricultural use due to the hilly terrain and poor soil conditions. Various larger settlements would have found a point where it was becoming increasingly difficult to keep their populations fed with trade between the other settlements for grains not sufficient in meeting their requirements. It was unlikely that these other settlements were in a position where they could produce a surplus to trade with. Although it seems many cities that were emerging in the Archaic period were engaging in trade with ports of other lands, this was not matching the level of population increase in many areas. It has been assumed that the exercise in establishing colonies was to tap into trade networks in other regions, though with it evident that the Greeks were already trading with many of these other regions before establishing their colonies, this would not be the only reason. In the short term, this departure of a body of citizens would relieve pressure on supply and demand within the city. This also worked when political troubles were at hand, within some cases groups would be exiled to stabilise the political landscape. In the long term, these new colonies would help in tapping into new markets, while also potentially allowing a surplus of agricultural goods to build up, since the sites for colonisation were usually chosen for their suitability in this field. This would then allow for a level of increased trade to occur with the metropolis, or mother city, once a colony was established. Although these colonies would, for all intents and purposes, become their own independent city, they still retained a connection to their mother cities and were expected to side with them in times of war. Though as generations would pass, a number would see this connection become weaker, which would lead to tensions, which we will see as the series continues. So now we have given ourselves a quick refresher, let's move on to the initial wave of Greek colonisation that would take place on Sicily. We saw back when looking at the Dark Age and Archaic Age that the island of Euboea off the eastern coast of Attica seemed to have been the first region that was beginning to prosper after the Bronze Age collapse. 
It would be from here, in the early 8th century BC, that the first recorded colonies would be established, as they would have been the first to experience this rapid growth in population. The first colonies to be successfully set up were in the Chalcidides and southern Italy. With these first colonies, it wasn't long before the first expedition would be sent, with Sicily as their intended target. Perhaps they had heard, through their past trading connections of the island, or through their southern Italian colonies, of agricultural potential. We find Diodorus recounting a poem that encapsulates the reputation of the island. Within this island all things grow, without help of seed or plough, as wheat and barley, with the fine, from whence proceeds both grape and vine, which with sweet showers from above are brought to ripeness by great Jove. It would be the year 734 that the first expedition from the city of Chalcis on Euboea would set sail west towards Sicily. They would also be joined by another group from the island of Naxos, it not being uncommon for multiple cities to be part of the same expedition. It was also normal practice for the expedition to have a leader who would be chosen by those involved, with Theocles of Chalcis leading this first journey to Sicily. The leader would generally provide a point of authority for the journey and the initial establishment of the colony. Once set up, it would be common for the new colony to take on a system of leadership and government similar to what was in place in the mother city. This probably being the case, since it was the system the colonists would have been most used to, and therefore would have provided the most stable system while developing this new colony. Theocles would end up leading his expedition to a small promontory created by a lava flow from Mount Etna on the eastern coast. The colony that would be established here was called Naxos, after part of the expedition. One wonders the importance of the role the element of Naxos played in the expedition, since the site would be named after them, not the Eubeans, who provided the leadership and also feature as the main element within Thucydides' account. Another question that has arisen is whether this was the intended site for the colonists to have landed and established their settlement, as the area around doesn't appear to be the most conducive for cultivation. Also, it appears to be quite a distance from other existing colonies in southern Italy, which could have provided support during the colony's establishment. Perhaps one reason for this was that they were not sailing into a vacuum. There was an indigenous population that already existed on the island. They established the city where they could. We don't hear of any other attempts to settle anywhere else initially, but we do hear that once established, force was used to expand and found new cities from the position of Naxos. Thucydides says, Meanwhile, Theocles and the Chalcidians set out from Naxos, and in the fifth year after the foundation of Syracuse, and drove out the Sicils by arms and founded Leotini, and afterwards Catana. Both of these locations were further down the eastern coast, with Leotini slightly inland, as well as both being much more suited to agricultural activity. In my mind, how this unfolded shows that the initial expedition had to settle for whatever land they could, without provoking the local population too much. Though, once established, and had consolidated themselves, they were now in a position to where they could challenge for much better lands. So these were the early activities of the first colony to be established, but as I have already alluded to, there would be more. A year after Theocles' expedition, another had set out, but this time from the city of Corinth, located on the isthmus that connected the Peloponnese to the rest of Greece. They would land on the eastern coast also, but further south, where they would establish the colony of Syracuse. This city would become the dominant Greek city on the island as time passed, but for now we are just going to mention it in passing, as Syracuse will play a bigger role in our next episode. 
In 729, we hear of yet more colonies being established, with the city of Megara setting out to establish the colony of Megara Hyblia, just north of Syracuse. We also hear of more colonists coming from Chalcus on Euboea, who would establish the cities of Zankel, later known as Messina, and Regium, later known as Regio. These cities would dominate the Straits of Messina, with one on the Sicilian side and the other on the southern Italy side. By 688, Rhodes and Crete would also establish a joint colony on the southern coast, which would be called Gila, named after the river it was built along. Around this point would mark the end of the first wave of Greek colonisation, to have swept into Sicily. Though, as we see, the Euboeans seem to have been the most active in establishing these colonies in its first wave. This would not continue though. As we briefly covered some time ago, the cities on Euboea would begin to decline after the Latine War of the 7th century, and other cities would continue to colonise Sicily in their place as new waves would come. For now though, the Greeks had established themselves only on the eastern coast, also where much of the most suitable land for farming was. We have seen, with the examples that we have spoken about, that there appears to have been some force used when establishing some of these colonies. In the literary tradition, we also get a picture of the Sickles living peacefully alongside the Greek settlers, though this idea seems to be more pronounced when looking at the Greek colonies with the Ionian connections. The Dorians are seen as using force more freely. This really is a generalised point of view, as with most migrations of people, there would have been circumstances that would have seen force as a viable option in being used, while in others, more peaceful arrangements would have taken place. Perhaps the view of a peaceful coexistence came about after a number of colonies were already established and tensions during the initial colonisation period had died down. Another detail we need to address briefly is the fact that it appears that the Greeks were not the only people looking to establish trade and eventually colonies on Sicily. The peoples known as the Phoenicians, originally from the lands around the Levant, had also been active through the Mediterranean. They would create a great many trading ports and colonies throughout the Mediterranean in the 8th and 7th century also, with the city of Carthage being one of the most famous. We'll be looking a little closer at the Phoenicians in our next episode, as we set the scene for the conflicts that would erupt in and around Sicily as the Greeks became more established. For now though, I just want to address the fact that they had also been establishing trading ports on Sicily, with it even thought they may have been present before the Greek colonies arrived. They would also establish colonies as time moved on around when the Greeks were, though they would be for the most part situated northwest of the island. We can also see Thucydides addressing the Phoenicians' presence on Sicily, where he says, There are also Phoenicians who occupied promontories upon the sea coast and nearby islands for the purpose of trading with the Sicils. But when the Hellenes began to arrive in considerable numbers, the Phoenicians abandoned most of these stations and drawing together took up an abode at Mataya, Solontum, and Panormus, near the Illamai, partly because they trusted their alliance with them, and also because these are the nearest points for the voyages between Carthage to Sicily. Like I said, we'll look closer at the Phoenicians and Carthage in our next episode, as they would become a major opponent of the Greek city-states that were developing in Sicily. I had planned to look at the Phoenicians in a separate episode, but the Greeks and themselves became intertwined as the story moves forward in Sicily so I thought we would deal with them in the context of events as they unfolded in and around Sicily. So, as we have seen in this episode, the early history of what was happening in Sicily before the Greeks and the arrival of writing has been a challenge to pin down with any certainty. 
Much of what we have talked about in this phase is still debated today, though we started to get somewhat of a clearer picture as the Greeks began their expeditions with the aim of colonising distant lands. During the 8th and 7th centuries, due to the known richness of the soil and potential for agriculture. Greeks from the various different city-states from the mainland would come to take advantage of the fertile lands, while also solving the problems of overpopulation at home. As time would move on, more Greek settlers would arrive in Sicily, bolstering already established cities, or intending to found new colonies. A number of Greek Sicilian cities would also begin setting out to establish new colonies themselves throughout the island, some venturing further west. Next episode, we will be turning to these activities, where we will see the further growth and development of the Greeks throughout Sicily. This would end up giving rise to the name later given to the island, Magna Graecia, Greater Greece. Though as we have seen, the Greeks were not operating in a vacuum. There were others present on the island. As the Greek population grew and expanded, they would come into closer contact with the Phoenicians, that were also trading and establishing cities in the region. For much of this earlier period, the two managed to avoid conflict, but with the growth that would occur, interests would start to be encroached upon. We also get a political trend to begin to emerge within the Greek city-states of Sicily. Much like the mainland of Greece, the cities of Sicily would also start to see the emergence of the political figure of the tyrant during this period. Though it would appear the constant threat of conflict and invasions from Carthage would also provide extra motivation for these tyrants to stay in place. I plan to continue on the development of the Greeks in Sicily, covering these aspects taking us up to the end of the period that the Greek and Persian wars were happening within Greece itself. As we will see, one of the major battles that would take place in Sicily during this time could possibly have connections to Xerxes' invasion of Greece in 480 BC. Thank you everyone for your continued support and a big shout out to all those who have found some value in the series and have been supporting it here on Patreon and other various ways. Your contribution is truly helping me grow the series. I would also like to give a shout out to our newest Strategos supporter over on Patreon. A huge thank you to Natasha Zorzi for finding value in the series and what I am doing. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you have found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button, where you can discover many ways to extend your support to helping the series grow. Be sure to stay connected and updated on what's happening in the series and join me over on Facebook or Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. And be sure to subscribe to the series over at the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. For our next episode, I'll be either releasing an interview I'll be doing with Mike Cole, the author of The Bronze Lie, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy, or I'll be moving on with part two of our look at Sicily with episode 39, Sicily Conflict and Tyrants. Basically, this is all going to come down to timing and when I'm able to do the interview with Mike Cole. Until then, take care, and I look forward to bringing you the next release.